and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, it's convention week. Next week is convention week. We are coming to you every single day of the convention with uh, some great guests. And we're going to be talking in just a short while with the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a guy named Pete Buttigieg is going to be uh, joining us. But but Rick, but before we get to Mayor Pete... Um, this was, I think, I'm going to step out on a limb, and I'm going to say that this was both the best and the worst first night of a virtual national political convention in all of American history. That is bold because we remember Andrew Jackson's virtual convention. <laughs> as it, but it, it actually showed some of the best and the worst qualities of it. You know, and the worst qualities to me is, you know, to have convention speeches, any political speeches without audience feedback is just awful. And the visuals and all of those things. And as much as you can, you can shine up the virtual appearances, it's just not the same. The best of it is to me, there was an intimacy to some of the speeches, um, particularly Michelle Obama's, which I know we'll talk about, that, that wouldn't have been there if there had been interruptions in the crowd or if there had been plays for applause lines. And there were, there were some of the speakers who were able to uh, deliver their messages in a, a, a more personal and compelling and direct way. Uh, people were saying it felt like a telethon uh, at times. People were saying it felt like a bad SNL skit at times. All of those things. But I, I felt like there, there were moments where I thought, okay, this wouldn't have landed quite the same way if it was a traditional convention uh, in a very non-traditional time. I mean, there, there were some, some very interesting moments in, in the contrast. I mean, look, this is, this is tough. I mean, giving a political speech without an audience is, is nearly impossible. We have witnessed this year after year after year with uh, politicians that have the unfortunate task of giving the, uh, the response to the State of the Union address. Um, you, you just know it's, it's harder. You don't have a chance to feed off the crowd. And this is why I would argue, and you can disagree with me if you would like, Rick, uh, but I would argue that there have been precious few memorable, great speeches, memorable for the news perhaps, but very few great speeches delivered from the Oval Office with the president behind the desk looking at it. I mean, remember you know, Nixon resigning, LBJ announcing he wasn't going to run again. I mean, you know, great historic events happened with those speeches, but have any right. of them, very few, uh, managed to inspire the nation? Ronald Reagan could do it. Um, most most presidents can. I mean, and Barack Obama, who was you know as 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 good a speaker as we've seen, his his people finally kind of like did away with the idea of an Oval Office address. He almost never did them in in his in his second term. Uh, it's hard to do this. And I thought it was interesting. Gretchen Whitmer came out um, to give to give her speech. And, uh, you know, my first reaction was it looked it did look like an SNL skit. <laughs> it did the, you know, get all the flags in the background, the, uh, the the seal of the state of Michigan. And uh, it, it your reaction, I believe, was it, it seemed like a State of the Union response. It just kind of, you know, it just kind of fell flat. On the other hand, um, you know, Michelle Obama, I mean, now, look, it was pre-recorded. We don't know how many takes she did, all that kind of stuff. But that was, that was an unbelievably effective uh, speech. Her delivery, uh, you, could, you could feel the passion. Uh, there was an intimacy to it. Uh, it seemed entirely nat natural and heartfelt. I, I should say, Rick, I tweeted um, that this was the best speech yet 
uh, the best speech ever given at a virtual convention. Um, and, and, and that it would be hard to top. And some, some you know, one, one of the uh, White House press uh, uh, officials on the official White House press, uh, you know, an official White House press account, um, you know, accused me of shameless political bias uh, for, for saying such a thing. Shameless, I mean, yeah. I, mean yeah. I, 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 I must remind you, Rick, yeah. that uh, saying that a, a speech was good is not an endorsement of the political message. Um, you know, and, and, and what I was thinking, it's like when, you're, when we're watching those, uh, those Super Bowl ads, you know, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was an awesome ad. Uh, for Mountain Dew in, in the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, and, I mean, just a, just a terrific ad. Uh, I think it was a terrific ad. I hate Mountain Dew, man. It doesn't mean I like Mountain Dew if I think they did a good ad. I mean, it's about the effectiveness of, of, of communicating. You'll lose a sponsor a here if, you're, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you go on too long here, John. Um, but, and I thought the, the, you know, we, we should play, we should play a little bite in a second, but the, the way that she nodded at the famous speech four years ago where she said, when they go low, we go high. She didn't disavow that, but but then there was like there was almost a subtle way that she went in for the kill. T- take a listen to this. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is glee in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. It is what it is. Oh. Did you oh, catch that? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Did you get it right away? Yes. It took. It took me. No, a little the, uh, while. The, the, yeah. the the Jonathan Swan interview uh, with with Donald Trump uh, on on the coronavirus deaths. It is what it is. I mean, it was it was it was a subtle. <laughs> Uh, and 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 really strong, and it was interesting because because you know Michelle Obama is somebody who um, you know by all accounts is you know kind of you know doesn't relish politics, doesn't relish engaging in politics. Um, she does, and she has at some critical moments, and she can be very tough. Um, but but you know playing the political attack uh, role is is not been her role ever. Really, and this was a takedown of Donald Trump. It, it was indeed, and and it was probably the most memorable yeah. clip out of it. And um, and again, not abandoning what she said four years ago, but amending it uh, in, in in a in a pretty a pretty interesting way. And I, I, I the other thing that I, I thought was striking about uh, uh, night one was the time given to Republicans. So you had. Uh, John Kasich, uh, given a piece of that precious primetime hour carried by uh, all of the networks, the 10 o'clock uh, uh, hour, um, giving uh, that was a little bit awkward. The placing, the placement of him at the uh, at the crossroads yeah, <laughs> out in the no, field. Really, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I kept thinking of Yogi Berra. You know, when you when you come to a fork in the road, you take it. Take it. Um, and then that the uh, the the collection of of the others: uh, uh, Christy Todd Whitman, uh, Susan Molinari, Meg Whitman. Uh, you know, prominent uh, Republican women, two of whom voted Democrat in the last presidential election. But, but you know, Susan Molinari was a top lieutenant for Newt Gingrich back in the, uh, you know, after the Republican Revolution in 94. Uh, she was the keynote speaker. I mean, that, that meaning that, that kind of this is our future of the party in 1996. And, and to see her uh, come out and speak. But I thought that actually more interesting than the re- decision of those Republicans 
to speak at the Democratic Convention was the decision of, of, of Joe Biden to give them such a prominent role. You know, all told, um, about five times as much uh, a speaking time as AOC will get. Um, and, 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 and she, right, she's going to be in the nine o'clock hour, not, not when all the networks are carrying it uh, uh, tonight. Um, you know, almost as long as, uh, as, as what Bernie Sanders had. Uh, but let's take a quick listen to, uh, to John Kasich. I'm sure there are Republicans and independents who couldn't imagine crossing over to support a Democrat. They fear Joe may turn sharp left and leave them behind. I don't believe that because I know the measure of the man. It's reasonable, faithful, respectful. And, you know, no one pushes Joe around. Well, uh, you know, like I said, interesting that, uh, that, that they gave him that platform. Uh, AOC was actually, uh, you know, t- t- took the occasion in the buildup to the speech to remind everybody that in her uh, analysis, uh, John Kasich is an extremist uh, anti, on anti-choice, an anti-choice extremist, uh, somebody who is not a friend of, 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 of workers. Anyway, so it didn't please everybody to see Democrats have, I mean, Republicans have such a prominent uh, place. Anyway, I believe we have Mayor Pete on the line now. Mayor Pete, are you with us? I am. Can you hear me all right? I do. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and. Uh, let's start right there. What, what, do you, what do you make of the decision of, of Joe Biden to reserve such precious speaking time on this shortened convention to a group of Republicans last night? Well, this is an election like no other, not just because of the stakes or who the president is, but because of the range of the American majority that supports Joe Biden. Uh, the most progressive Democrats to uh, a lot of uh, uh, moderate Democrats, independents, and even some Republicans. And so to have you know, Bernie Sanders and uh, a number of uh, deeply respected Republicans all uh, coming together on the same night uh, with the same message, which is that we've got to elect Joe Biden, I think demonstrates how broad the appeal of this campaign is and how important it is that we do this. In other words, we're sending the message without you know, changing any of our positions. In fact, the platform is very progressive. And at the same time, making it clear that you don't have to be a diehard Democrat to know that Donald Trump is wrong for this country and we need a new president. And, and what, what, what message do you think uh, Biden is sending here uh, in terms of how he will govern? I understand the message against, you know, that, that you can have a broad coalition that thinks that Donald Trump has got to go. But how does he govern? As you well know, you, from, from your experience, uh, uh, your performance during, during this primary battle, uh, th- there are competing visions here. I mean, is this going to be a a unifying administration if he wins, uh, will, one that tries to, you know, what, 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 which direction? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to reflect the fact that his first instinct is to bring people together and solve a problem. He knows how to fight. He's not afraid of a fight, but he's somebody who's going to reach out every chance he gets. It's something I saw a lot when I was competing against him, and, and he would do everything he could just as a human being to reach out to, to me and all of the other competitors. And that's one of the things you, you're seeing a lot of us reflect on is those of us who, who competed uh, this past year have been speaking out about why we're, we're so enthusiastic for the ticket. Look, there will be a vigorous and healthy tug of war uh, about exactly how to do these things uh, in the event that we earn the presidency and succeed in, in the House and Senate. Then, of course, there will be uh, a lot of debate over exactly how 
to raise wages, how to uh, uh, defeat the, the virus, how to uh, face our climate challenge, how to deliver racial justice. But the question that's being settled in November isn't over how to do those things. It's whether to do those things. And that's an area where most Americans agree with each other and agree with us. You mentioned the the enthusiastic support that you feel for the for for this ticket, and you know we've polled on this consistently, and there's a big enthusiasm gap. People that are uh, voting for Donald Trump are more enthusiastic about that prospect than they are for Joe Biden. That's closed a bit, maybe in the wake of Kamala Harris's choice, but it is a real uh, distinct thing. And to me, it's if you're a Democrat looking at polling and thinking about where the country is, it's uh, it's something you have to be a little bit worried about. What's what is your message around that? And 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 do you feel like the, these conventions? Are a lost opportunity in terms of conveying that because for all we heard from the speeches there was no there's obviously no audience feedback and there's no visual display of enthusiasm yeah obviously we're we're in uncharted waters in terms of how to do a convention virtually and i think a lot of us were anxious going into last night to see uh, how it worked but uh, what happened was, you know, a, a powerful message, frankly, a lot more concise and you could argue more efficient than the in-person conventions, which are, you know, ready for some kind of change anyway. And ending with this incredibly powerful, smart, emotional, convincing and clear message from Michelle Obama to wrap up the night on, on why this is so important. I think that is uh, uh, so motivating because, you know, even though the, the failures of this presidency and the dangers of this presidency ought to be motivation enough, you know, I don't think you should ever run a campaign just based on what you're against. And I think it is important for us to convey, you know, not just what we're up against, but what we're for. And in Joe Biden, you have somebody who is uh, uh, just a decent human being. So in addition to having better policy answers, and in addition to being a more capable and competent administrator, he's somebody who just has the empathy that it takes to lead this country, especially at a time like this. I think we need to continue communicating that. And I'm excited to to continue communicating that because uh, it, it's going to be really important to present to the American people, you know, not just what we're against, but what we're for. I'm curious as to what the what the give and take has been with the Biden campaign in the lead up to the convention. You came out and endorsed him shortly after dropping your bid. So obviously you've been in consultations, but then we went into the COVID era and you spent you know five five months or so where where very little active campaigning was going on. What what was the communication like? How how closely have you been in touch with the campaign about your ideas? And, and how do you feel like the, the message that you brought through the primaries, winning the Iowa caucuses even, uh, have been incorporated in how the Democratic Party is, is talking about issues now? Well, I've been really pleased to see a lot of the ideas from our campaign live on in the Democratic platform and in the vice president's priorities, uh, e even things that, uh, you know, were pretty unique to our campaign, like the conversation about the need for uh, structural reforms to depoliticize the courts. I, I was really gratified to see that uh, make it into the platform, as well as a lot of other ideas, even knowing that, you know, the conditions in this country have changed so much just in the six months since uh, since I was out on the trail myself. Uh, uh, as far as working with the campaign, you know, I, of course, I thought uh, when uh, when we, we took that step and, and, and began campaigning for Joe Biden, I thought that the months ahead would be largely filled with travel, with literally going out on the stump for him and, and the other candidates that, that I believe in. Uh, instead, of course, it, it's been virtual. But uh, for all that, it's had some of the same qualities, uh, the, the experience of uh, kind of virtually seeing uh, the faces of, of voters and supporters in the different places I've uh, 
figuratively go, whether it's for uh, media events or, or uh, whether we're uh, doing fundraising or, or, or rallying volunteers. And uh, also that, that kind of quality of just running into people. Again, not the same. And I think we can't wait to be campaigning in person when we can safely do it. But uh, chances to, to just kind of have, a, uh, you know, the, those few minutes kind of uh, leading into an event with uh, folks from the campaign, with the vice president. And uh, also been really pleased to see such talented people who worked on, on my campaign, which really was built on just different terms than I think uh, a traditional campaign. Uh, really excited to see so many of them taking on important roles in in the Biden campaign uh, for the Biden-Harris ticket. One of the things that is so unusual, I mean, there's so many things that are so unusual about the virtual convention is that so much of it is taped. Uh, not, yeah. as, you know, roughly half the, the, uh, the program is taped. And some of the speeches are taped, and you can kind of tell when they were taped based on the reference to the to, to the COVID-19 deaths, you know, if it's live, it's 170,000. If it's like Michelle Obama taped about, you know, a week earlier, she says over 150,000. Uh, on, on Michelle Obama's speech, which was, you know, such a big and huge moment in, on, on night one, it was striking to me that it, that it had been taped so far, so long ago, that she couldn't even make reference to Kamala Harris's pick because she taped it before... Biden made that decision. Uh, it, it, is your speech? Did, did you did you pre-tape your speech? You're speaking on Thursday, right? Are you, are you live or, or pre-taped? Yeah, no, we're we're. Uh, a matter of fact, I'm still uh, uh, refining my remarks. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know how uh, everybody's you know participating on different terms. The the obviously the technical dimensions of this are are pretty extraordinary. But uh, what strikes me is the the emotional power of all of these different form. I mean, just in the space of the two hours last night, right, we saw so many different formats. And we're still learning, not not just as a party, but I think as a country, uh, how to work with those different formats. And yet it, it made for a very powerful uh, first night of the convention. How do you prepare for that? You're, this is a really difficult thing to, to, to give a political speech without an audience. To yeah, feed I mean, of. again, when, when, you're, when you're used to campaigning, uh, you know, you learn to watch faces rise and fall to, to connect is uh, something we, we usually do through through eye contact and so it is very different the the energy is different the emotion is different uh, and yet in a way I think it's a chance to capture the moment too because uh, you know in, in everything from the the ways that we're all learning to just go about our professional lives on on, on zoom to you know, the glass that is sometimes between people and their loved ones that they're visiting and at uh, assisted living facilities. You know, we're all finding ways to take things that really matter to us, relationships that matter to us, uh, and uh, and negotiate them in, in these kind of new patterns. And we're, we're all learning as we go. But, you know, there's never going to be a convention like this. Hopefully there's never going to be a uh, crisis of this particular type again in our lifetimes. But... I'm pretty sure that in 2024, some of the things that we did, some of the things that we learned and pioneered across these four days uh, will have become forever part of how conventions are done. These four days, of course, are the, the four days of the Democrats. You, you have your, your party has the opportunity to put its best argument forward. One thing I was struck by, and I communicating with some aides and strategists in the last, in the last 12 hours or so even, is that there was a sense to me that this was a, a conventional convention only in the way that it was, it, it aimed to inspire, to, to, to rise up, to quote Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, we, we sometimes say that one candidate's playing 
checkers and someone else is playing chess. It, it, do you feel in, in watching this and thinking about this sometimes that you're playing chess as the Democratic Party when the other guy is going to like burn the board and knock it over and throw it throw it over you know into the ocean at the same time that the, that that Trump has so changed the terms of debate that you run a risk in doing something that tries to just inspire people when you know the other side is going to going to be on the vicious attack. I think I know there's hand wringing over that. I think the most important thing there is he's losing and we're winning. So so when I hear these, you know, uh, should the vice president somehow do something to emulate or simulate the the attention that the president's getting by saying, uh, you know, behaving like, like like a lunatic on a daily basis? The answer is no, because we're winning. I mean, yes, he's succeeding in getting attention. The president is. Uh, but uh, he's he's also a remarkably unpopular president by historical standards, and he is losing this election. Now, don't take that for complacency, right? We 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 could uh, we we have to do the work. We have to earn this victory. We have to win. Um, but uh, I also think that it's increasingly clear that just the 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 gnashing of teeth and the, the darkness and the meanness and the chaos and the sense of just a dumpster fire over there on the Republican side. Uh, may, maybe it, it captured uh, something about the, uh, uh, the, the frustrations of some people in 2016, but it, it is something that a clear majority of the American people today, including many Republicans and independents, find exhausting and are ready to move on from. Well, by many measures, you are correct. Uh, you know, Joe Biden appears to be poised to, uh, to to win. He's way ahead in the national polls. He's ahead in the polls in virtually every battleground state. Um, but let me ask you as a final question before we let you go. Uh, as you know, fortunes can turn. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are the potential pitfalls that he needs to avoid? How would the Biden-Harris ticket blow this lead? And what must they do to prevent doing that? Well, we need to sustain the energy. We need to reach out to everybody everywhere. You know, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't believe the Electoral College is uh, democratic um, or the right thing to do, but it is how it works. And so, you know, national polls could be uh, uh, whatever they are. Um, doesn't mean much if we're not paying attention across the different states where we've got to be competitive. Of course we are. It's one of the reasons why the convention, uh, I think, wisely was set to uh, return to the Midwest and, and come uh, to Milwaukee because this part of the country is filled with people, uh, from people who live in an industrial city like mine uh, to people involved in agriculture who have so much to lose from four more years of the chaos and the division and the economic disaster that's that's now unfolding under this president. Uh, but that, that story doesn't tell itself. Uh, you have to go out and, and bring that message out. And of course, we've got to pay attention to the mechanics of the elections themselves. The uh, old handbook on how to do get out the vote is, is profoundly different uh, when it comes to how we do it with uh, so much vote by mail. And we've got to be very vigilant uh, about any efforts at, at voter suppression. So, uh, you know, I think everything about the fundamental, everything basic about where the American people are and, and what we want and need uh, is a tailwind for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Democrats up and down the ticket. But we do have a lot of headwinds, uh, including the mechanics of the elections themselves, and we've got to be ready. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you. We really enjoyed having you on Powerhouse Politics. We enjoyed covering your campaign. And history will note that it was your appearance here on Powerhouse Politics that happened right before your campaign took off. Clearly. So, I mean, correlation, <laughs> Cause causation, I'm not sure, uh, but, but that, I'm, is, I'm that, sure. Is, that is that is a verifiable <laughs> fact. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Great being with you. 
Rick, uh, the lead is is undoubtable on the uh, I think indisputable on the um, on the uh, side of uh, of Biden Harris. I think that most honest Republicans, Trump campaign people included, would 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 either publicly or at least privately acknowledge that. But long way to go. Long way. How long ago does it feel like Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa caucuses? I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, six months ago, that's the world that we were in when we, we learned that he belatedly won. And, and that was its own history making. It's the first openly gay candidate to win a presidential nominating contest for a major party. Uh, you know, and I, th- I actually thought, I had this thought independent of, of, um, of knowing he was coming on the show today. There was a, there was a, a calm to the to a lot of the convention that felt that felt to me like a mayor p type of touch it was a message that he delivered and 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 tried to course through the primary what he was telling us a moment ago about not beating donald trump by yelling louder than him that was something he talked about on the stump all the time it was key to his appeal in iowa was that he was potentially this calming influence uh and that you you, he had a line about not having to worry about the president every day and you know biden biden i think taps into that as well. So there's what, what the Democrats are selling this week is a is Biden not just as a you know, set of policy solutions, but as an antidote to this entire Trump era. And and John, I always have to remind myself that these conventions are not for us in the sense that the political reporters are actually not the target audience. Usually campaign events and interviews and things like that, you know, they're, they're trying to they're trying to work through us. In this case, they use our airwaves, but they're trying to work around us in the political press corps. And the way that these conventions are consumed is different than almost everything else uh, in, a, in a political campaign. Uh, debates are really the only thing that comes close that has that crossover appeal. And this was designed to, to give license to a lot of folks that are you know, maybe Republicans, maybe independents, maybe casual voters to think about a Democratic ticket. And that is the way that they're trying to frame up this convention in, a, in, a, in creating what would be a uniquely Biden coalition of voters. Well, we are going to be following it every day this week and, uh, and the Republicans next week. It's interesting to note, speaking of the Republicans, that the president is doing uh, pretty aggressive counter-programming here. He was out, uh, out and about yesterday. He's going to be out again today, Iowa, Arizona. Uh, and the Republicans are no doubt watching what is happening with the Democrats as they do this kind of first ever uh, virtual convention. Uh, our Stephanie Ebbs got a great little tidbit, which is uh, that the, uh, the campaign has um, submitted an application to the National Park Service to do fireworks uh, at the Washington Monument on the night of President Trump's speech at the Republican convention next week. And um, by the way, that that speech, uh, as I think I predicted on this very podcast uh, a while ago, is actually looks like we'll be at the White House at the South Lawn. Uh, 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 I mean, we, we usually think politics shouldn't be happening at the White House and we're going to have a a convention speech right there at the White House. <laughs> right there, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be something else. So we have a lot to talk about uh, in the days ahead. When it comes to convention coverage, ABC News has you covered, especially with the podcasts. Check out 538's Politics Podcasts. They're going to be going every night looking at the conventions. And, of course, start here. Our friend Brad Milkey is going to be doing special convention coverage every night of both conventions. And you can find the links to those shows and much more in the episode description, so please subscribe to them all. Thank you to the entire Powerhouse Politics team. Susie Liu in for the missing 
Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, Rick Klein, and myself. We will be back tomorrow.